This is the Theater Meets Critic Podcast, a podcast specializing in all things theater, hosted by the one and only Oliver Boone, featuring a special guest every week. This is the Theater Meets Critic Podcast. Passion, theater, actors, theater. LA, New York, Paris, Berlin, Critic. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Theatre Meets Critic podcast. I'm your host, Oliver Boone. Today I have with me the writer and director Omar Salas-Samora on the show. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I'm glad we can finally do this. I've been wanting, I've been wanting to have you on for quite a while now, actually. Thank you. Very excited. Okay, so Omar, tell me about the, tell me about the first film you ever directed. And what was that like? This was a really weird situation. So I was um, 16 years old. And I really loved writing. More than anything, I loved writing. And I think if I had theater people that were more susceptible to me, I think, uh, or more inspirational to me at the time, I probably would have gone closer to being a playwright. Uh, and I was in theater when I was a freshman in, the, in a sophomore in high school. And I kept writing these, these sketches and I really wanted to do them, and it was always a, like an, an argument of like they're too mean, or they're they're too gross, or too foul, or whatever. I'm 14, 15 years old. So that's obvious. Uh, and I I kept getting more and more upset. And there was our drama teacher who was going to put up this play, and I like specifically like kept out of it. And I started shooting things with a lot of the 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 students by myself and I was taking all the all the sketches that I wrote and all the short plays and I just repurposed them for film and we were shooting everything around town shooting everything like in our parents houses and backyards and I specifically made the premiere date the premiere date for her play uh because I hated her so much (laughs) and I I wanted to just see what the turnout would be. And I made it very complicated for a lot of people because they obviously are part of the drama class, but they're in this movie. Uh, So we actually were able to fill up my backyard with 70 seats twice. We did it on Friday and we did it on Saturday. And it, that was the first movie that like I directed. I was 16 years old, and it, nobody will ever see it. I mean, I'll show it privately, uh, but it's like this 80-minute movie. That uh, are you familiar with Kentucky Fried Movie? Um, I've heard of that. Isn't isn't that sort of what Movie 43 wanted to be? Is it a bunch of sketches? Kind of, yeah. So like, there's yeah. a there's sketches and there's a through line in Kentucky Fried Movie. It's the idea of well, they're flipping through channels. It's kind of what what uh, the, um, the Adult Swim show ended up doing later on. I forgot the name of it. Uh, but Robot Chicken. Robot Chicken, yeah. So yeah. in in Kentucky Fried Movie, they'll will they'll change channels and we'll see like a bit of a news report and like a bit like some movie trailers and we'll see like a, a mini fifteen minute movie in the middle of that with trailers that precede it. And that's what my movie was. 
and that uh, that way I was able to do whatever I wanted. I, there was even like genuine drama in there and like genuine horror movies in the midst of what should have been a comedy, which is the reason that it, it doesn't work. Um, but it it was that was the first experience, which isn't a real movie, obviously, but it was just one of the things that like oh this was incredibly fun to me and I made it happen and. The whole thing is just At like sixteen as well. The, the whole thing is just an act of disobedience because I only did it because I was told that I couldn't do it on stage, and I th- that that was you know the the thing that got a lot of motors running between me and my friends. Um, but when I was nineteen, we actually got together about fifteen thousand dollars. And we went up to the woods and we made it like a cabin in the woods. And that's a comedy. So that's like the first time that it was like, it's not a a real budget, but it it is like a budget, I guess. Uh, But we, we, that was actually like, we brought in some LA actors because I was still living in Bakersfield, uh, brought in some LA actors, went up to the woods and we shot there for about two weeks. Um, And... It, it really, it really sucks because a lot of comedy has changed so much just over the last decade where like I can now look at my earlier movies and like, oh, this is incredibly mean and it's mean spirited. And because of that, they just should, shouldn't be available. And so as far as like um, my more recent movies, that's just more in line to what I want to be in the future. So those are the ones that are available yeah i i got to see um i i got to see one of your movies uh not too long ago you made it i think available for 24 hours it was happy bu- happy birthday duncan yeah i love happy birthday duncan. it's very interesting uh can you tell me about the the process for that uh what inspired you to create it happy birthday Friday? duncan is this kind of bastardized poor man's cassavetes movie um, and if you look at um, Faces, Faces is about a couple that's disintegrating and they go off on their own for the night and they make friends separately and they uh, possibly start affairs separately. And I loved this like high contrast, like Verite style, and that was kind of pushed over to Duncan. The thing about Duncan as well is Duncan was supposed to be a B movie to another movie that I was making, which was a more expensive A movie. I was making a romance that I thought was like, you know, this is my ticket. You know, this is what's going to do it. But we had a little extra time and we had a little extra money and it kind of, it felt stupid to waste that. So I, and that was maybe only like four or $5,000 extra that we had for that movie. So I was like, oh, well, let's make another movie. Let's make some little experiment and we started doing um we started doing some improv sessions with the idea of happy birthday duncan and the those actors came over we we shot the improv sessions i kind of understood what characters they were going for i understood the story i understood their relationships so pretty much sent them home and i wrote a hundred page screenplay based on the improv sessions and they came back thinking we were going to improv more, but I had a script for them. And, and I think it, it was, a, I think it was maybe a little bit difficult for some of the actors because they're, they have a script that has so many like, ums and yeahs and stuff like that, because 
I'm trying to mimic their improv in the writing. So it, it because of that, there's just like this inherent um, fly on the wall feel to that movie because we did rehearse it and we knew what we were doing, but it's all built on this should feel like improv. And to the point, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, uh, like when I was watching it, I hope you, I hope you don't mind the genre, but it did make me think of a mumblecore movie. And yeah, it should feel like a mumblecore like movie. A backlash. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> but I like I like the arms and ours because I sometimes find, especially when I, you know, uh, whenever I've done a student film, I see a lot of the dialogue can be so. Um, it's almost. It's it's just so clean and this is people speaking in a way that's not natural yeah and in and in life you know we we do uh we we have some like nuances and not everything's perfect exactly and on on that movie specifically we took it a step further the cinematographer didn't read the script he didn't have a copy of the script and there was three people handling cameras i was one of them and nobody knew what anyone was going to do but me, the actors were only only knew their parts of the movie. I think the two leads had the whole script, but everyone else only had their sequences in the movie. So, whenever there's a sequence that someone's about to fight, the camera people don't know where to go. They're following the actors because there's there's nothing set up whatsoever. We lit the rooms as if we don't know what the actors are going to do, even though I did. And so the cameramen are sometimes stumbling following the actors, sometimes just keeping up with them. And I, I think it, it, it created something much more unique than I thought was gonna, that, than I thought it was gonna be initially. And that's the movie that survived because my more expensive romance is the one that crashed and burned. What happened to the, what happened to the romance movie? Uh, this, it, it, there's a lot of things that went wrong. I think there was just a lot of, uh, there was a lot of miscommunication between myself and, and the crew and the cast. Um, I think I made some wrong decisions on picking collaborators and that happens. And what, what's, what's nice about the situation I've been in is I've kept my movies very small. So I've, been in situations where where something doesn't work well this doesn't work let's not release it and that's fine and that's obviously not what you set out to do but it's it's nice to be in control of that yeah so um you have you have a film that i've i think i, I was an extra for and i actually did a sound job one day for you. it was our hollow bedrooms yeah hollow bedrooms uh, is, is the big one yeah how's how's that going at the moment uh it's going well so the the thing with hollow bedrooms uh is i always want everything to be shorter just because i i write what i think are pretty manageable scripts um i'm very interested in those stage silences so movies just send, tend to get stretched out because of that. Hollow Bedrooms was only a 115-page script, which should be an hour and 55 minutes if you're doing it correctly. The first cut of that was two hours and 20 minutes. And there's just a lot of, a lot of um, I'm a big fan of, of staring. 
screen. A lot of a, a lot of two characters sitting in a room staring at each other is just more interesting to me than writing out monologues for them. And I, I completely agree with that. And it, it also is just kind of like it, when somebody looks at the movie, it's the easy thing for them to point out and be like, "Why is that so long? Cut that." Uh, especially if you're not like into the movie. But right now, uh, I'm, I'm at a length that I'm enjoying. I need to watch everything at least a couple of times before I move on. Uh, we're working with, I'm working with the composer, uh, kind of making sure everything is working out well. I, I, I set out really extreme standards just because the, the rough cut of the movie is like scored by like these amazing composers. It's like Philip Glass and Morricone and stuff like that. So like, any composer looking at is like, what the fuck do you want me to do with this? Because it's just so many different styles going in scene by scene. But yeah, Hollow Bedrooms is, that's, you know, that's the behemoth. That, that, that's the thing that I've spent the last three years of my life on. I can't wait to see it. And I can't wait to have it up. In terms of, uh, it's, it's, it's an anthology movie, isn't it? Or is it, it like, um... It's more or less an anthology movie. I look at it as like a Robert Altman ripoff. So I look at it as this kind of smaller Nashville. Um, there's a lot of characters going in and out of each other's stories. Uh, thematically, they're not unified, which I think uh, an anthology sometimes is. This is really kind of like five slice of life moments for different characters in Los Angeles tonight. And but they interweave, it sounds like. Yeah, a couple of them are interweave there, yeah. And there the there is like a family at the for the backbone of the story and the family's going, you know, having their own individual stories. Um, but there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on in it. And just financially you you want to figure out a way to do any big project like this. What was really nice about Hall of Bedrooms is because it's more or less five short films, I shot it like five short films. So every six months, I would spend the time to get all of those things correct, to, to be happy with the script. I would cast very, very slowly. I would take my time trying to figure out who's correct for everything. Then after that, we would have rehearsals for up to two months at a time for each section of their movie. And then they would go in and they would shoot their movie for sometimes probably three or four days at a time for their section of the movie. And they're, they're done. And I think that really, really worked for me because I was able to focus on every actor as if they're the star of the movie. And the, it, it seemed to really work out for um, the energy of the project we really kind of looked at it as, well, this is five units of production on the same movie. Uh, so uh, what, what is your approach to uh, working with actors on a set? I feel like I shouldn't work with actors on a set whatsoever by the time we're on the set. I, I with especially the last two things, which has been Hall of Bedrooms and Adam and Fragments, we do such heavy rehearsals, such, such heavy rehearsals where sometimes we're meeting three times a week, sometimes we're doing it for three weeks beforehand. Sometimes this, this rehearsal period will last six hours. There's no reason at all that we should have, we should not be 
have a mutual understanding of what we're doing by the time we're on set. By the time we're on set, my my methodology is that should I, I should really only be acting as a technical advisor. I really right. shouldn't be. Nobody should ever be asking me like, "Does this house just say island?" That's a question we should have asked three weeks ago, and we should have figured out in rehearsals. And so, oh, so, so you do a lot of so you do a lot of rehearsal work. A huge amount of rehearsal work, and uh, by usually I'm pretty open. But the first time I will rehearse with the actor, we treat that as the first draft. And I need to hear it from their mouths. If something sounds incorrect, we have to manipulate it so it sounds correct. Either I have to manipulate the actor or I have to manipulate the material. But something has to change because it's not correct. And by the time we, we work on the drafts of the scripts together. So by the time we're about to start shooting, nobody should be in any disagreements on what we're doing. And that's that's been very very helpful for me especially because we're moving, we're making movies on such a tiny scale and with such a limited amount of time you don't want someone to be confused on like well why am i wearing this color shirt you you that all needs to be figured out beforehand and the only thing that i should be dealing with on the set is technical problems is the camera in the right place is the lighting in the right place and I mean, it makes complete sense because I mean, a film day is long enough as it is. But if you're having to, if you're having to think about like uh, the acting process as well as the technical, it's, you're gonna you're gonna dump. Yeah, and especially I, speaking to actors that have told me like, well, we're gonna I'm gonna go into my shoot day at two p.m. is my is when I have to shoot. Uh, they need me in there to co to go in at noon so I can rehearse with the actor playing my husband, who I've never met before. That's insane to me. To, to throw, film is permanent, it's, it's, it's tangible and it's going to last forever. And I think actors the same way should be fighting for more rehearsal time. They, that, that is their image crystallized forever. And do you want that to, to go off of a two-hour rehearsal that you met like right before shooting right yeah you you, you come across as, to me as somebody that doesn't want to leave like uh, anything to chance you you like to really uh like get things uh per perfected yeah nothing should be left to chance that 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 is the yeah. point of rehearsal that is the point of pre-production and i try to stress actors as much as I possibly can of like, yeah, this belongs to me. It's my movie. It's your face. It's, it's your face. And it's just gonna, it's, it's, it's so important to just stress, like it's there forever and it won't change. So do the absolute best job you possibly can. And it's, especially when we're doing on, on hollow bedrooms, there was a section of it. That's a very, very heavy section about two drug addicts that are in love and we rehearsed for about about two months and we were meeting about three times a week and that was simply like what about this what about this every single line has another line as subtext every single every single movement should be with with a, a, a driven thought and if it's not then there's something incorrect about this and it's really important to to you know hammer that in because when you're 
especially with, with heavier material, by the time that you're shooting, you don't want to seem flippant. You don't want to seem like, well, I just, this is a choice I'm making right now without anyone else's thought or input. That's also, I think, really selfish to your co-stars. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you, uh, that you would have been a playwright if you had been around more theatrical actors. Have you thought about maybe going into playwriting? At I think what I, what I would really enjoy, what I would really love to, you know, a, a box that needs to be checked for me, I would really love to direct a play, and I think I would probably direct something that exists. There, there, I'm, I'm very in love with Tennessee Williams, which is why I'm happy we're going to talk about Cat Hudson Roof later. Um, but I, just as this like kind of interest, I have like, oh, let me go through some different agencies, some different like acting uh, uh, communities. Does anyone that can play Maggie exist anymore? Does anyone that can play Brick exist anymore? And I don't know if they do. Uh, and so th that, that is the, the guy that I look up to the most, but I just don't know if his material works as well in the 21st century. Um, and I don't know if there's anyone that's around that can really give it what it needs to work. Interesting. I mean, I, I, I can see where you're coming from as is like, yeah, it's a completely different era, and yeah. people's personalities just aren't the same. And the, I think you, you, sorry. Uh, I was going to say, and and I think the modern productions I've seen of Williams's stuff on stage or just uh, just film plays, it's always with this like nostalgia factor. It never feels immediate. It always feels like putting on a show, and that is just inherent to, to I think, modern productions of, of, of that guy's writing. And so even though I would love to do a Tennessee Williams play, I just don't know how well they're working now. Um, I, I, there, there are some plays that I really love. Um, there's there's a Fortune, Fortune in Men's Eyes, which is, a, I, I really, I'm really into prison plays. I don't know why. Um, but uh, Fortune in Men's Eyes is real. It's this kind of guy going to jail and trying to understand, you know, the hierarchy of it. And there's also I really have you ever read Short Eyes? I've heard of Short Eyes. I've never read it. Short Eyes is really really good, and I've always been really like fascinated by that. But Short Eyes is pretty much um, it's it's a white pedophile that um was just arrested for for raping I I like a twelve year old girl. And he goes into jail and everybody knows he's going to die today. And it is a primarily like black and brown jail. And there's just this very meek white uh, pedophile there. And you just kind of feel the walls closing in the entire play. And it's, it's so good. And it's, it's also just interesting because um, I think the language is is very appropriate to whatever culture is speaking it, which I think I've had a problem with before with, um, with playwrights that are trying to, you know, break out of the box and trying to portray different cultures. Uh, this short eyes specifically, like everything seems appropriate to who's speaking. 
Yeah, he was um uh, the playwright's uh, Puerto Rican, I believe. Yeah, Michael Pinero, I think. Michael Pinero, yes, yes. Yeah. I remember when I was researching another play, I came across Short Eyes. Yeah, but is, there, is there is there a film version? There, there is a film version. Uh, it's from the late '70s. It's on Blu-ray. I don't own it, which is very stupid of me. Um, but yeah, it's it's something that it, the play, the the film does a really good version. There's also like a, a, a version on YouTube, like a film play of it as well. Oh, great! But I I really like I'm I'm I don't know why, but I'm I'm just attracted to that idea of the suffocation that I think stage brings so much better than film. Yeah, and it's just, it's, you know, I mean, what I always think is the most beautiful thing about theatre is, you know, it's a moment in time between, like, the actors and the audience. Yeah. You know, and, you know, once this one's been said, they, they're, not, they're not coming back. Yeah, exactly. And the theatre is the only medium that actors have it's the only ones it's the only medium where they're the leaders and the, the final decision is up to them and you obviously you could possibly get in trouble if you disregard your director's notes or go off book or whatever but the final decision is yours and in film we can say it's a director's medium but it's an editor's medium and tv is for writers so I've always really found it fascinating for, especially, I, I, the, the best actors that I have met have come from theater because they, I think that's where they feel like they have the most power. And then your work as a director is to take away from them. I wonder, yeah, I wonder what that is where, um, where like theater, theater actors, I, I guess it's because they're able to, um, they're able to be so much more, um, I think, expansive with like their performances. Yeah, and I agree. So like it's it's always e it's always easier to to dial down a performance than than build it up. Yeah, it is, and that, I mean that's a hundred percent always a problem, especially when I have maybe a younger actor, and they're from the stage. Is they're gonna give like a crazy performance the first take? Which is fine because yes. you're gonna you're gonna dial it down. What you don't want to do is have someone that doesn't never study anything and is you know like a mouse saying their lines. It's harder for them to get to that hysterical outbreak if they're over there whispering their lines. Well, I think hysterical outbreak. I think Gene Wilder. <laughs> I feel like he was the master of that. <laughs> yeah, um, there, there, there's, there's a a lot of ways that I've tried to, to deal with actors, but I, one of the biggest things like collaboration, I, 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 I try to really let them know what I'm feeling or what, what I think the script needs. And, and no one's really been a problem for me when you're open with them. I think, I think a lot of frustration with actors come with like, oh, I showed up and I was given to a totally new script. Yeah, it's all about communication in the end. I think like any job. Um, so just real quickly, um, to just uh, end this interview, uh, what advice would you give to a young director starting out? I, I really am just, you, 
need to make connections. When I was, when I started really pivoting to wanting to make more dramatic stuff, I would start going to one act festivals. I would try to like talk to people afterwards. I would befriend actors. I would look at all of my friends' shorts, which I know can be like excruciating sometimes for some people and like try to like add all those actors on Instagram. Try to try to, if somebody is interesting to you, reach out and tell them you're interesting to me. Like that's all it takes. And there's been, there's been an interesting thing with my work the last couple of years because it, it is really this, this fetishism towards actors because I love them. And all there's these long, long scenes of like, let me just show off these actors. That, that has been what I've, that's, been, that's what I've been doing the last couple of years. Um, let me just, I really love this actor. I'm gonna write the best fucking thing I can to them. And I want them to really be able to, to stretch in a way that they haven't. Or I've been, if I've been following around an actor a lot and they're getting a lot of dramatic performances, but I see that, wow, they're really funny. Why is nobody giving them a comedic role? Why is nobody giving them a comedic role? And then I have this guilt on like, well, it's because you haven't given them a comedic have you ever wanted to uh, act yourself? Um, when I was younger, I did act. I and, yes, yeah. And in the web series that I made as a teen into my early twenties, I did act in that. I was one of the leads in that. Uh, I when I started doing, I started doing some theater stuff when I was in college. Um, I would act on stage, but it's simply a situation like anything when you start off and you're kind of trying to figure out what you're doing. On my first movies, I would do everything. I'd be the DP, I would do sound, I would do, uh, I would direct, I would write, I would do everything. And then slowly as time goes on, you figure out, oh, you're a better cinematographer than I am. You should take the job over me. And you need to have, you know, you, you need to be humble enough to do that. And the same thing with sound. Oh, you're better at sound than I am. You should do it. That goes hand in hand with actors. I simply met actors that are better than me. And I really started realizing, oh, I was never a good actor. I was just the only actor. And I, I really took myself out of it because it, it didn't bring me joy. But to not make the movie at all, it was like not in the question. So I would rather make a movie with me than not make the movie. Theater. Meeks. <laughs>